Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. On today's show, we have on Rich Benjamin, head baseball coach at Indiana Wesleyan University. Rich is in his sixth year at the helm, and in his first year, the Wildcats had one of the most successful seasons in program history as they advanced to the NAIA National Championship opening round for the first time. The Wildcats topped their 2016 success two years later by going 37-20 in the 2018 season, winning the Crossroads League and reaching the NAIA opening round for the second time in program history. Coach Benjamin was named the Crossroads League Coach of the Year for his leadership during that season. Prior to Indiana Wesleyan, Benjamin was the head baseball coach at Judson for eight seasons, where he accumulated the most wins in program history with 304. So on the show, we go over how being a pitching coach early on helped him to develop a well-rounded approach as a hitting coach and now head coach, We discuss why we need to simplify things in a world of constant noise. And we dive deep into what Rich calls the training zone versus the performance zone and what the focuses are. You're going to love this episode with Rich Benjamin. Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Definitely, definitely. And uh, I'm glad to, one, be back podcasting again and, and two, get to learn from you today and so a, a mutual friend of ours, Kyle Nelson, put us in touch and said that, you know, I, I think Kyle is probably one of the more open-minded and creative coaches that I know. And he runs you know, Cornerstone Coaching Academy and make sure you guys check, go check that out. But really open-minded and, and told me about you and, and, and some of the different things that you're doing as the head coach at Indiana Wesleyan. And so I am really excited to get to dig into what you guys are doing and, and but for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better as a person, can you tell us a little bit of a short, of a short snapshot of how you got into coaching and where you're at currently? Yeah, so I spent my first two years volunteering at Martin Methodist College. Uh, that's where I graduated from down in Tennessee and then was hired by uh, ABCA Hall of Famer Elliot Johnson to be his GA at Olivet Nazarene. I uh, spent three years there uh, in a pitching coach capacity and then was hired at Judson University at NAI School West of Chicago uh, at age 27. Uh, that was my first head coaching job. Uh, we were there for eight years um, and then uh, came to Indiana Wesleyan about five and a half years ago uh, when the position opened up, um, went ahead and reached out and had an opportunity for an on-campus interview and got to see behind the scenes the the mission of the athletic department and why it exists. and connected really, really well um, with the value system there. And, and it's been a really, really good growth opportunity uh, since that time. I love that. And, and so you, so you were a pitching guy and now uh, from all indications, I think you work more on the offensive side. So tell us a little bit, I didn't know that about you. So tell us a little bit about uh, how being a pitching coach maybe helped you with uh, one being a head coach too, because you probably get to see a more well-rounded approach and program now. But tell us how it helped you uh, be a better hitting coach as well. Well, I think you know, obviously at the at the small college level, you're going to wear a lot of hats from year to year, or even different hats from year to year, uh, based on assistant coaches and overall personnel. Um, I was 25 years old when Elliot Johnson 
interviewed me for the GA position. Uh, he asked if I was a pitching coach, and, and I said yes, and I, I wasn't, and I really wasn't much of any kind of coach right at that time. I probably thought I was, but, um, and so as soon as he hired me, um, I reached out to uh, a, a ton of people uh, very quickly in a short period of time, for like two weeks, and just started to kind of gather and organize information and uh, and then go in. I got hired in January, so we're in the middle of the school year. Um, and so, you know, there were some limitations there on and, and some healthy limitations on what you should do uh, when you come in in the middle of a school year compared to the beginning of the school year. So that actually helped a little bit. Uh, there was less temptation to try to reinvent, uh, you know, what was happening. And so kind of transitioned to that, you know, and did that for three years. And then um, at Judson University, took on more of a hitting coach role uh, during that eight years. And so, um, you know, the movement patterns are movement patterns. There's a lot of correlations between both those worlds, you know, and then obviously, you know, understanding, you know, what pitchers are doing and what they're trying to do, and what the hitter's trying to do and how to combat against that. Those worlds are connected uh, very much so. You know, I think for me, you know, I just, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I can't stand there and watch the 20 bullpens. And so our pitching coach can. He's very, very good uh, at what he does. And um, I kind of like to be on the field in a different capacity. And so, uh, you know, kind of made the switch that way. I really like that. And I, you know, I think the listeners may know, but I was a pitching coach for a couple of years as well. And I jokingly say it was the longest two years of my life, but it was, it was a really good learning experience, but I can definitely get behind the kind of getting stuck in a bullpen and, and looking, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're looking through the fence and seeing all the fun action that's going on, but we had some really good arms and it was, it was a lot of fun to work with those guys, but I, I agree with you. I think it, it helps me to develop a well-rounded approach. And then whenever you know what you're going to get from the guy who's on the mound, it helps you develop an approach and plan based on, on all of these different things. And, and so it's really interesting to be able to see that and to see both sides. And like you said, movement patterns are movement patterns. And one is just a little bit more reactionary than the other one. And so let's talk about you as a head coach. So uh, you got to Indiana Wesleyan, and and I just want to know because one of the first things that I think is so critical, it's like what was what's the vision that you put into place early on, because you know I think we talk a lot about how to win an interview, we talk a lot about what the prep work that we need for that, but I don't know many people who talk about okay, what do you do the first day, you know, and so how do you how do you start to, I mean we're coaches, we're in the business of selling. And so how do we sell our players on our vision and how do we sell them on ourselves? Because, you know, they picked the university, they may not have picked you. And so uh, just kind of walk us through what, what, what were the most important things that you did and what were some of your first steps? Well, I've gone through that process twice. And I think the, the, the moment of failure the second time I went through that process and went through it at Judson in 2000, in the fall of 2007, and then went through it, you know, obviously Indiana Wesley in my first year here is assuming that your process at the first place will like directly translate to the second place. And every place is different because the people in the room are different. Um, and the, the way the, the organization is structured and so forth is different as well. Um, and so there were some some adjustments that have to be made that way. I think the strength was just like coming into a place and just trying to express belief. 
of hey like if if we, you know we are capable of playing to our identity uh, and if we play to our individual identities and our you know our team identity then production will go up and the outcome will be better and so and that's what we saw you know i think in the first year at Indiana Wesleyan, you know, they had hit three home runs the year before. We hit 52 in year one and had a senior third baseman that had never hit a home run in college. He hit 10 uh, his senior year. And then the team ERA, I think, dropped to close to three or right at three. Um, we had a left-handed pitcher that um, really developed a really good, you know, fastball changeup. Uh, be able to add and subtract on it. He ended up being an all-conference pitcher. And I mean, it was like a really, really cool experience. And together, the guys accomplished more uh, than they, than they ever had. And so that was really special. And you kind of think, hey, this thing's just kind of rolling. And after that, there was there was a lot of you know growth opportunities and and, and moments of failure and figuring things out to to kind of get to to where we've been in the last year, which we feel like we've reached some areas of some breakthrough. Well, that's great. I, and again, I love. I love hearing just different perspectives because I think you're probably thrown things that are thrown at you that you couldn't quite plan for, you didn't quite expect. And so I'm sure year two was, was a lot smoother, but at the same time, it's like, okay, we're constantly <laughs> having to adjust on the fly. And I love getting to hear you say, you know, that belief and setting the tone for that early on. And I think that, you know, if I'm a player and, and the, the coach is coming in who didn't really recruit me and, and I'm getting to hear him talk about, hey, if we just stick true to what we do well and and we believe, you know, in ourselves and each other, then we're going to be successful. And I really like that. And you know, we were we were talking off the mic a little bit, and you you mentioned that you're really good, or you try to do a really good job at simplifying everything. And I think when you say that, you mean you're not trying to make it simpler. You're just trying to take all of this different information that we have. And you're trying to boil it down to, okay, what's actually important here? And then what's just noise, right? And so I, I really like that. And, and would you mind going into that for us? Because I, th especially with players, in the age of information that we end, they're constantly being bombarded and stimulated and there's noise everywhere. And so anytime that we can do that and we can pull them back and just say, hey, listen, here's what we're looking at and, and here's here's what it says and, and here's what we need to do. And then like, oh, okay, they're freed up to actually go be an athlete and go react to a 95-mile-an-hour fastball. And so tell us a little bit about your process with that. Tell us how you do it, some of the different things that that you that you do on a daily basis, and, and let's just go full in and go, go all in with this. Yeah, well, I think the simplicity starts kind of in the beginning where you, you kind of look at like your team and, and how they're made up and where are they at now and, and where do you think they could be in, in six months? And you look at it and go, okay, like in a very simplistic way, you know, what do we see this team could be really, really good at, right? And and then devote 80% of our training environment to that thing, uh, whatever that is with that particular team. And so, you know, there are some teams where we felt, Hey, simplicity is is getting the ball off the ground, and other teams' simplicity was you know getting runners in motion, uh, and some teams can do both. Um, you know, I think you know taking um, an entire hitting movement and then just simplifying that into maybe three major core values, and then everything else outside of those core values uh, are very much individualized. 
um, to where you're not sharing everything you know all the time with everybody, uh, keeping it really simple from that standpoint. Um, but from an organization standpoint, you know, I think that things started to really clear up for our guys when we started divided our training environment into what we call like learning zone, training zone, and then performance zones. And so um, we don't necessarily use those terms every day. I try to stay away from, you know, I guess like Twitter type language or hot words sometimes language with our guys um, because I think sometimes that can come across to some as, you know, a little less authentic uh, in some capacity. And so it's more or less how we organize things behind the scenes. And then when we get there, you know, we just tell them like, hey, you know, here's the situation right here. And and here's a little bit about what to expect. And so um, we started to organize early work uh, every day where early work for us is simply a like a learning zone, training zone. Um, the expectation there is that you're going to be stretched. Uh, there should be moments of failure because we're stretching, um, but you shouldn't be dominated. And that was a mistake that we made um, a couple years ago um, when we started using machines all the time. Uh, we would get those things, you know, geared up, you know, every day, you know, and just there were kids that were just overwhelmed. Right. And I think there there comes a point where if you're so overwhelmed, you're not really you know, you're not building your self-awareness and your observation ability to get better. And so um, but we want to go ahead and make that that environment, if you will, challenging uh, where there's moments of failure in it. And we just tell the guys, hey, for the next 45 minutes to an hour, um, here's the, the design, the setup um, and what we're trying to accomplish. And, you know, there's going to be moments of failure. There's going to be, you know, we're just going to lower heart rates. Um, you're not going to see coaches freak out and and we're actually not going to do a ton of, you know, hands-on per se coaching during that time. We're going to give guys some space to figure out how to win the environment, right? And so um, we give them the opportunity to go ahead and do that and then uh, and kind of go from there. So, you know, in that situation, the simplicity is like we set up the environment and they get the opportunity to just go and compete in that environment and have moments of failure and figure it out. And just know that like we're not, you know, we're not really measuring uh, so much during that time. Um, and then when we go into team practice, we're going to call that the performance zone. And then everything inside of that is going to be measured. There's consequences and so forth. And that becomes like a very competitive uh, environment. And so I think that's kind of helped simplify, you know, what the expectations are uh, throughout the different segments, you know, of our training environment. I really like that. And, and I want to, you know, double down on this aspect of it because I saw that you gave a presentation on the Barnstormers event on that. And, and so it really piqued my interest into how you guys are doing this. And so let's, let's start, you said learning zone, training zone, and then performance zone. And so with, with the early work, uh, one thing that, that I'm curious about is, is who do they come to you with these different things that they're wanting to work on? Do you guys set a plan, like a goal setting activity and then have all of this prep work ready for them to go? I mean, how, how does this work? So they, do they just hey, say, Hey, uh, coach Benjamin, can we come in tomorrow and I want to work on X, Y, and Z or, or how does that work for you? So we, uh, for the early work piece, uh, myself and, uh, and Bryce Davis, our assistant coach, 
Uh, we share the hitting responsibilities, um, which has been really healthy and effective. When you have 16 to 20 hitters in the room, you know, the capacity to get to all those guys effectively with one person, you know, is is not a realistic expectation, um, especially with, you know, classes and labs and so forth in the, the short windows that we have. And so uh, Davis and I essentially just create a environment for early work that really helps um, navigate like like everything that we do. We want to combine intent with barrel control. And so we don't want to give up a lot of the plate to hit for power. And so, but yet we want to hit for power, right? And so whatever drill we set up in early work or a series of drills or some type of uh, environment that way, we want to be able to combine those two worlds into that drill. And so we set up the drill in the environment, the guys come, they compete and figure out and they learn inside that environment, right? And so, for example, you may have We'll go like a double barrel, you know, on field BP, right? And you may have two angled machines at roughly, you know, 40 to 40, maybe 40 to 44 feet away from home plate. And they're each kind of hugging the line and they're coming in and they're like barely touching, you know, the outside corner or the inside corner based on what angle they're coming from. And, you know, there's some velocity there because you're, you're coming off a machine with it. And it can be a really challenging drill to figure out how to stay on your line and still drive the baseball, right? So that we're not hook and we're not push. And so we may have those two segments set up and then off to the left and the right uh, of of those double cage, um, we may have two flip stations with like short bats, right? And so you've got four hitting groups that are getting ball flight at the same time. Um, and there's some different focuses that they're taking within all of those. And really the focus is, you know, hitting the ball with a lot of intent, uh, but also staying on your line, not losing your barrel control. And so um, that's kind of like we set up the environment and then the guys come in and then, you know, they, they tackle or they try to find a way to navigate the environment. Um, when we go into team practice, you know, we'll do a BP session. Um, you know, what we call eight ball. And that comes from um, Matt Braga. And what that is essentially is, you know, if you execute something, you're one for one. If you don't, you're 0 for two. So you could take as few as four swings or as many as eight. And you can make it eight ball, 10 ball or 12 ball. Um, But on those days, you know, there'll be moments um, that are more frequent than not where you'll tell the hitter, hey, today, like you're choosing what you want your eight ball, 10 ball, 12 ball to be in all of your different rounds. And so those are good feedback sessions because now the hitter's kind of telling you where their head's at, right? What they're focusing on, how they're processing and so forth. And then they're creating objectives that they're holding themselves accountable to. And so, you know, it's kind of a balance of both worlds. You know, we're in early work, we're setting up the environment, but we do some things inside of a traditional BP where they're kind of leading that conversation. I love that. And I think that I can't understate the power of choice and how that affects one, your brain and two buy-in. And I'm sure that that's fairly intentional with, with you guys being able to do that. But I also love it that you use it as kind of a measuring tool and kind of a psychological piece to where they're at. That's really neat. 
So with within that, uh, let's talk a little bit about the culture that you're setting up because I think that with a lot of the things that I'm hearing, you're really putting the players at the forefront of the culture. And so uh, again, we can rewind if you want to to did uh, if you set up the program how you wanted it or if you aligned it to the school's beliefs. But tell us a little bit about how you, whenever you took over the job, how did you decide on the the mission and the vision that you guys wanted? And then kind of walk us through how you carry that out on a daily basis. Yeah. So as far as like culture building in our program, you know, we want to make sure that everything lines up with, you know, the vision and the values of our organization, uh, which is really uh, selflessness. It comes from Philippians 2. Uh, and what does it look like to you know, really, you know, die to self and, and live and serve other people well. And um, so we've done kind of several things, you know, on and off the field to, you know, really work towards implementing that that vision. And so uh, one of them is, I think this is essential, is having older guys really intentionally invest in younger guys. And it took a couple years to, for us to have our young guys get old enough and and be the larger number in the organization and have a great leadership foundation to be able to invest intentionally in the younger guys. Um, and, but we've done that in a couple of ways. And one is comes from the Latin word competir, which means to strive together, uh, which is where the word competition comes from. And so for us, it's like, if you have two shortstops and, and they're at the position and they're competing, you know, for a job at that position, you have to realize that like, they both need each other, right? If, if they, if, if you and I go, you know, sprint, you know, 60 yards by ourselves, but then we sprint next to each other, um, you're going to get a little bit more out of that second one. Right. And so to find out what your ceiling is and, and so forth, and to ask the right questions that, that help you dive into that, we need competition. Uh, there's a, there's healthy competition and there's unhealthy competition. I think healthy competition is when you see and value uh, the need for competition, the healthiness of why it exists, and you realize that by striving together, um, that it's really becomes more of an iron sharpens iron, uh, even when it comes to your opponent. And so if we have two shortstops at the same position, then those guys are both competing, but they're also competing to a standard that's above the room, right? It's above where they're already at. And so, um, you know, they're sharing information with each with information with each other. They're challenging each other um, and, and pushing each other. Uh, but at the same time, they're pushing each other towards a standard that's above where both of them are currently at uh, in outcome. And so I think if you do that in a healthy way, the chance of both those players eventually find their way onto the field is much greater. And so it's almost like anytime we measure something if we go scarlet versus gray, you know, it's it's not just the winner, it's the winner plus the standard, you know. So if the standard is, you know, let's say 20 points, uh, which means that hey, this team is incredibly effective in what they do, you know, okay, now we're declaring a winner. And so if the standard is 20 points and, and both people are below that or both teams are below that, then you're not declaring a winner, you know, in, in that situation. And so... You're just trying to clarify to the environment that, you know, it's not enough just to, you know, win the job. You know, you've got to have a vision that goes beyond, you know, what's in the room 
you know, what is the ideal that's necessary to to have an opportunity to play, you know, after college, you know, to go ahead and play deep into uh, into the postseason. And so sure. um, the other thing we've done is we got rid of steam uh, team study tables, um, putting 35 guys in a room. We felt like the only thing that got better was uh, their fantasy football team. And so we went ahead and put them in groups of six, uh, senior through freshman, um, that had the same major. And then as a coaching staff, we became the contact point to the older guys in the group. And that gave an opportunity for leadership off the field, peer to peer. And we've seen a lot of fruit with that uh, in the outcome of that as well. And so I think those two things have been uh, really healthy for us. Um, two years ago, we did a father-son weekend. Um, and then COVID's kind of got in the way of rescheduling the next one. Um, but we actually rented a facility for a whole weekend and invited all the fathers of our players to the facility with our players for the whole weekend and just had like an intentional time together um, as a group. I mean, it was incredibly powerful, uh, the opportunity the fathers got to just speak into the lives of, of our guys and uh, to be able to do life together uh, that weekend was um, really, really special. And so uh, really just kind of like looking at things holistically and, and trying to, um, you know, look at things from a relational standpoint. I think like it gets you outside yourself and it gives you an opportunity to continue to grow. Oh, that's really good. And I, I love the, the original ideas that, that you're throwing out at us and uh, father son weekend. That sounds like a, like a ton of fun. And, and I know, I know that me coming in as a, as a college freshman and, and having some support from some of the older guys would have been and was a, a huge reason as to why I felt a whole lot more comfortable. And so let's go ahead and, and skip to just the fall season. So we're in, you know, November in the, at the time of this recording. And so it, it's, it's, it's probably been a lot different this year because of COVID, but let's talk about just kind of the, the incoming fall that you guys had. And let's talk about, you know, what was important, what you guys really hit on, and then maybe we'll just run into some ways of, of, of ways that you changed because of, of the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. So it certainly has been a wild, you know, last six to eight months. Uh, we were really blessed this fall. We were able to get uh, eight weeks on the field uninterrupted, uh, which was great. Um, we, we had some positive cases uh, once we got off the field uh, during our off season. So actually almost our entire team is actually in quarantine until the end of this week. And, uh, and we weren't able to do anything with them. Uh, last week as, as well, you know, for those two weeks. So, um, but on the field, you know, I, I really looked at it from a standpoint of, you know, COVID, it shortened the season, you know, for us to 19 games. And typically with a postseason, you're going to play closer to 60 to 65. And um, so I looked at it like one, like, hey, let's do a lot of things that they really enjoy doing because they haven't had a chance to do it in a really, really long time. And the other piece was, um, let's go ahead and give our pitchers um, additional time before they have to see a hitter um, so that we don't have to on-ramp too quickly. Um, and then the last piece was like, we got to play. Um, whether it's so if we, you know, let's say we had, you know, let's say we had 48 sessions, you're going to inter-squad in 40 of those. Uh, you know, you may do 20 
20-something of those off a live arm, and then another 20-something off a machine, and you may vary innings and time and themes and so forth. But, you know, we really like to, to machine scrimmage um, or live arm scrimmage at the back end of, of nearly every day um, that we're out there. And so I, I think what that allowed us to do is, one, they get a chance to play. And that's why guys play the game. They want to play. You know, they don't want to be always in a restrained environment. Um, and so the machine scrimmages and, and how we theme those out and so forth, I think, you know, allowing guys to, you know, get on the bases and, and make decisions um, on that standpoint and, and, uh, and in the field. And then also from an offensive standpoint, um, you've got to really express that you understand what the game's asking you to do and, and that you're making an effort to do that. And so um, really that's kind of how we approached it was like, you know, every day uh, trying to provide those opportunities um, and, and really have fun, you know, at the same time that we're learning and growing and, and being accountable. Um, and then the other thing, you know, every year you've got to pay attention to you know, the temperature in the room and the energy level and so forth. And, um, you know, I think there were some days, days maybe in the first couple of weeks where we pulled back a little bit uh, more than maybe we, 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 would, we did in the past. And we were just kind of going and reading off, you know, their bodies and, and kind of where they were at and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, really just trying to combine those worlds to, to get through the fall. Um, but for us, it was that. And for us, it was, you know, it was seeing a lot of ball flight um, in the north. You, you spend, you know, a lot of time in cages, right? I mean, you spend a lot of time in cages in December and January and, and it's part of February as well. Uh, and then for guys who, you know, maybe had access to a cage during quarantine, but many, you know, did not have access to a field. And so... You know, for us, we did a lot of four station work and early work. And then where you're doing ball flight at all four stations and then obviously still doing a, you know, a competitive BP session during our team practice. So we were mapping out about 70 on field swings per guy per day. Mm -hmm. And this way they could see ball flight and get feedback. Um, and then also like they just weren't in the constraints of a cage where they had been in for so long. And so, you know, Will we do it the same way next year? You know, maybe not. You know, there might be a shift and so forth in how we approach it. But we just felt like that was best for the group that we had and, and the moment that we're in. I really like that. And, and I know that a huge focus of yours is to be able to make things game-like and things game speed. And so, you know, in some of our pre-work stuff that you filled out, and I appreciate that you doing so, you mentioned that you want to do as many sessions as possible with base runners, hitters, and game speed. So do you mind kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of that and, and how you guys are teaching that? Yeah, I mean, it's a relatively new uh, transition for us, probably in the last two years or so. Um, I had a chance to go watch our men's basketball team uh, practice in their preseason. They've won three national championships in like the last five years. And, you know, the, the speed, the intensity at which they do things at was incredible, you know, and, and you walk away from that and you go, is there a way to even create that in a baseball environment? You know, I mean, it's, it's hard to say that baseball practices look like basketball practices, right? And in basketball, you know, you get to go ahead and have your point guard out there every single day. 
And in baseball, it really requires a pitcher and he's not available every day. And so, um, you know, it's like, how do we create uh, some of these things? And so uh, one thing we did is we started to develop some some segments during even during some installs where, you know, we would create a situation where you've got let's call it nine on nine. Right. And you're nine on nine, scarlet versus gray. And you've got a runner at home first and second, and you've got a fungo hitter and he's going to hit, you know, 12 total reps. We'd like at least one of them to be a line drive to the infield where there's some accountability for the base runners there. And, but it's really going to be a base running and relay section where, you know, we hit 12 baseballs, the runners are all at full speed and the defense is at full speed. And we're doing this with, you know, following, you know, our rules for base runners and our rules for outfielders and relays um, based on like where the balls hit and so forth. So they do 12 reps on a point system. It's a real simple point system. And then they rotate and the other one does 12 and then you have a winner and then the loser has, you know, a consequence. And so you're working on the base running piece and the relay piece and communication. Uh, it's a shorter segment, but it's at full speed. Um, I think that part's been helpful. Uh, in BP, you know, the Iowa Western, I mean, I think, you know, that BP, uh, the live ball BP that's been going around for the last several years, uh, we do that. You know, we modify a little bit about how we organize it depending on the day. If we feel like we need a little bit more recovery um, before guys are swinging. Um, but that's been, you know, really fruitful for us. Um, and then, you know, setting up, you know, a machine scrimmage where, you know, sometimes we'll just be like straight innings, you know, clear the bases after three and play six outs. Uh, and that's more straight up. But then other days where, you know, if it's, you know, let's say it's nine on nine, all nine guys are going to hit, you know, in the top of the first, and they're all going to hit with the exact same situation. And we may stay in that situation the entire day. So you may hit with a runner at third, less than two outs in all five of your machine scrimmage at bats that day. Right. And then they rotate and we just work off of a a point system that way. Um, So some days it's going to be more randomized. Other days it might be a thing where, especially early in the fall, Hey, we want a hitter to really develop their awareness and their understanding of like how to execute in this situation. So if we only give them one shot at it and then we change the theme of the inning or we start the inning in this theme, but the guy hits him in and now there's nobody on, right? Then are we really working on that? And so um, we may stay in the same theme for every hitter the whole day to where that guy gets five opportunities in that situation. And we may program it that way the first couple weeks. And then after that, we may change the situation by inning or just play things straight up. I really, really like that a lot. And I think that that that's a great point too. And I didn't think about that of getting them comfortable with the situation early on before changing it. Because I, like you said, that they're, they may be trying to learn what they need to do to uh, strategize against that, the pitcher based on that situation, which I think is really good. And giving them as many reps within that is, is obviously always a good thing. So let's, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned you want to know the difference between instruction and coaching and when to apply each. Can you hit on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're starting to see this take off a little bit, you know, trend-wise. Something I was reading on probably six or seven years ago, and uh, you're starting to see, you know, more and more language and conversation around this topic. But really what it is, is uh, there's a book out there called Coaching for Performance. And in that book, you know, the first five or six chapters do a really good job of explaining the, you know, the the difference, the academic difference, if you will, between an instructor and a coach. And the way it's defined is an, an instructor exists to tell you everything that they know, right? So you can imagine like sitting in a classroom, right? And you're listening to an instructor, right? And they're telling you everything they know on a topic. And then the definition of a coach is someone who helps you learn about yourself. And so, you know, essentially looking at essentially instructors, they make statements and coaches ask questions, uh, typically open-ended questions. And so, you know, if, if I go through, you know, the entire, let's say I go through a four-week period with our guys and all we do is make statements, then as a coaching staff, we're owning the environment right? Hey, do this, do this, try this, do this, right? And so if it works, then like everything stays pretty healthy. The moment it doesn't work, then the environment kind of turns on itself, right? Um, and so, um, however, in, in straight coaching, where the objective is to ask open-ended questions and help the, the player develop their self-awareness, and their observation ability for what's going on inside them and around them. Um, now that person owns their development, right? They own the process. And so we're really trying to teach guys how to coach themselves, right? How to ask themselves questions inside of different situations where they can find answers and figure things out um, even on the fly. Right. Because there's going to be some things that happen in a game that may not have been touched on that week. Right. Or you may not see a lot of, you know, you're, you're not going to see a, a certain type of pitcher, you know, 15 times that year. There's some guys you see once or twice. And so the ability to ask yourself some open ended questions leads yourself to finding answers and growth. It's really more of a growth mindset approach um, than a fixed mindset. And so. Um, you know, for us in our environment as a coaching staff, we're trying to ask more questions than make statements. And so we have to figure out, hey, when is it appropriate to be coaching here, which takes more time? And when is it that we have to just give an instruction, right? And say, hey, like, this is what we got to do right now. This is this is where we're at, right? And so you're often going to give an instruction when there's like a time restraint um, where maybe something comes up in a game and it's like you're having to adjust on the fly, right? And there's not time to, to go ahead and kind of open that thing up. And so, but ideally we want to really invest on the coaching side where the player really continues to lead the conversation by responding to open-ended questions. And that gives that player an opportunity to kind of dive within them and figure out um, you know, what's going on inside of them, inside this situation, this environment, and then be able to look around them and build their observation ability. Um, that's really how they're going to be able to adjust 
you know, to the the randomness, you know, of the game. Oh, that's great. And, and it sounds like you're just really, one, you're really trying to teach the game, but also, you know, use the Socratic method, which is asking questions. And, and I, I like how you phrased it of, we want to ask more questions than really give instructions or, or give, give answers. And, but there's also a time that you need a quick fix, you know, maybe in the middle of the game and you may say, Hey, we need to do this, this, and this, or even one of those things. But I really like that. And so let, let's talk a little bit about in-game strategy while we're on the subject. And, you know, you mentioned that you guys don't have a ton of, of access to scouting data. And, you know, it, it's just something that, you know, I'm, I was, was in amateur ball and then got into pro ball, which is completely two separate realms. But I look at it and I go, okay, in amateur ball, there is an opportunity to maybe not scout, but really to devise a strategy and maybe bucket guys or, you know, put them into situations and practice of, against guys that they are potentially going to see. And how do we set up an environment for where they're going up to the plate and have been in that situation before? And so let's let's talk a little bit about game planning and, and how you guys practice that or, or just in-game strategy, the, that part, because we're, we're transitioning from the fall, which is, you know, our, our training zone and where we're, we're trying to level up our weaknesses and continue to, to, again, level up our strengths as well. But then we're going to get to a point in the next month or two to where it's like, okay, now it's game mode and we've got to win today. So tell us a little bit about your strategy for practicing in-game strategy and game planning. Yeah, I mean, I think for one, like we try not to ever get totally away from that when we're together. Uh, even in the fall, you know, we really want to find ways to, to compete, you know, every day and, and have some performance there uh, from that standpoint. Because, you know, we, it's hard to trust what development's taking place if it's not showing up in competition. And we have to create opportunities for, you know, the, the side work to, you know, transition to what's happening on the field. And so, you know, I think when it comes to scouting, at least for what we're doing, uh, the most important scouting report is ourselves. You know, what is it that we do well? Um, what is it that, you know, maybe we're not built for, you know, and what is it that we are built for? And then how do we accomplish that based on, you know, various situations and so forth. And so, you know, we're going to, um, you know, have guys inside of the training environment, inside of BP, you know, they're going to they're gonna go ahead and run their rounds based on their identity and their strengths. Um, so that they can execute who they are inside of a game. So that's going to look a lot different from hitter to hitter, um, even inside of a BP session. Um, and then, you know, we're going to mix up on um, machine scrimmage work and so forth. We're going to we're going to mix up the hold playing guys and the guys who sink the baseball. We're going to see the curveball. We're going to see the slider. We're going to talk about different situations and so forth from that standpoint, so that those things are being touched. I mean, really every week, right? And so it's not like, hey, on Friday night in April, we're going to see a whole plane get lefty. And, you know, so therefore on, you know, Wednesday and Thursday's practice, you know, we're seeing a whole plane guy for the first, you know, off a machine or whatever for the first time all year. We're actually touching those different types of pitching um, profiles throughout, you know, every week in the fall and in the preseason. And so therefore, you know, we're ready for 
as ready as we can be for the different types of guys that we're going to see, right? And so, um, does it does that help a little bit? No, definitely. Do you mind you? Do you have off the top of your head kind of the different profiles that you guys are looking at? Oh man, I don't have like all of them off the top of my head. Um, okay, sure. Yeah, I, I know we we offer really, I mean, really the hold plane and the sink. Uh, really, the story of the fastball is probably what we spend the most time on, right? Cool. Can you get can you dig into that for our listeners a little bit more? Just like, what do you mean by the story of the fastball? Yeah. So like we want to cover the fastball and we don't want to get off the fastball. And so I know a lot of times, you know, when we talk with our hitters after maybe an at bat that wasn't, you know, we didn't control the at bat very well. uh, It's amazing how often, you know, we'll say, Hey, what were you looking for there? Well, I was looking breaking ball, you know? And it's like, well, you know, if we're looking breaking ball, most of the guys that we have, the breaking ball they're going to drive is going to be a hanger. You know, if that pitch is executed at a really high level, um, you've got to be pretty special to to redirect that baseball in a way that's going to cause some damage, right? And so for us, we want to stay on the fastball all the time. And then if we stay on the fastball, we should be able to adjust to the hanging stuff, right? The adjustability there uh, is, is not um, drastic. And so, um, so for us, we're going to spend a lot of time on whole plane fastballs, sinking fastballs, you know, and, and, you know, a little bit on maybe the cutter piece, uh, hard slider, um, to where we're seeing velocity, you know, that does different things. And we figure out how to be on time for it and get our path, you know, in the way of the pitch. And so we're going to spend a lot of time on that piece, uh, knowing that like, that's a pitch that we have to win to be successful. No, thank you for that. And, and I, I love getting to hear just, uh, again, I, that's something that, that I, I think that's, that's really good. And I just wanted to make sure our, our listeners and, and myself, we're all on the same page and the same vocabulary as you're using so we can, we can understand you the best. And so I've got one more question for you be, before we hop into the, uh, the lightning section. And I, so you've talked a lot about self-awareness within players and I think that that's, it's, it's so vital, but I also think that we have, we have a lot of guests who are in a wide array of, of age ranges. And so I would love to hear your best practices or your best advice with coaches in the amateur ranks for the most part. So even, even with you, I mean, the ages from 17 or 18 to 22 to 23 is very vastly different as far as maturity levels, but help us with your best practices on how, on how to, to help players to know themselves and to know what they do well. And I think that, and this is, let me rewind a little bit for me, this was, this is kind of hard to tell amateur players as a high school coach and I'm coaching freshmen to seniors and, and really trying to, to fit them into a box. And I didn't want to do that, but I also wanted to highlight what they do well. And I, and I think that there are sometimes that players have, have skewed thoughts on how, you know, how good they are or what they're good at. And so being able to help them with that self-reflection piece and then really giving them our opinion on it without, without fitting them into a box that we don't think that they can get out of. I, I think it's a, 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 I don't know if it's a delicate balance or not, but that's, that's something that we want to avoid. So 
walk us through what that conversation looks like with you. I, I don't know that your players and I'm sure they're all of them are, are a little bit different, but I'd love to hear your process on how you work through those conversations with them. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a lot of layers to it. And, you know, one of the, the, the main things I think about before hopping into those layers is that, you know, truth has to have a place to land. And so if a person's not self-aware or they don't have a lot of observation ability for a particular situation, even sharing truth in that moment, it has no place to land, you know, and so it's not received and it's not implemented. And so um, you've got to kind of create a groundwork, you know, for that, uh, which frankly takes more time than just giving a statement does. And so um, when we started to transition to asking more questions than making statements, it was incredibly uncomfortable. Uh, one is, you know, when you start to transition that way, as a coach, as a person who's doing it, you have less experience doing that, right, than making a statement. Um, the other challenge is that players, you know, many players are so accustomed for years just being told what to do, what to do, what to do, that they've never or they've, you know, they've rarely had the opportunity to develop some self-awareness, right? And some observation ability. And so I look at it like the groundwork is going to be really challenging and you've got to be really patient, but you have to trust that even if you lose some momentum early, that the ceiling is going to be higher later, right? Because if your development is just based on my statements, then your ceiling as a player is me. But if I ask you a lot of open-ended questions and, and you get to you you start to be able to be able to use that skill set with yourself, then your ceiling is now you, right? Which I can guarantee is going to be a lot higher than if it was me, right? And so that's where you, you can't lose focus of the long game. Right. The reality that, hey, this is going to be a skill that takes time for you to develop as a coach and for the players to learn how to operate within. Um, and you may lose a little bit of momentum early, um, but if you stay with it, then the ceiling can be so much higher. And I think those are really big pieces um, from that standpoint. I think the other thing would be like, you know, if you ask a player an open ended question, they're going to probably ask you another question. And if you chase that with a statement, then like now we're back to square one. Right. And so, you know, being able to chase that with another open-ended question to allow them to keep searching right within themselves and to observe what's going on around them gives them the opportunity to continue to own that process. Right. And so in coaching, it's a partnership and, you know, we are basically a soundboard for them to work off of. And there are going to be moments where they get stuck when they get totally stuck and you've exhausted this process. I think those are the opportunities where we can say, hey, you know, what are your thoughts on trying this? Right. Hey, let's see if this works. Right. And that's healthy. That's OK. Like they still own the process. Right. They're stuck. Hey, let's try this. And you're trying it with, um, you're trying it now with even like a little bit less ownership as a coach than you would have had if you'd have just given it right out of the gate. 
And I think in those environments, like the player either consciously or unconsciously respects that they're not getting ambushed and that, you know, we've really exhausted the process that really helps them learn how to develop themselves. But now in this moment, they need a little bit of direction. I really like that. And and again, thank you for, I love hearing guests work through some of the different questions that I ask, because again, that's not, it's not an easy thing to answer because we're not, I'm not giving you a specific player with a specific instance, but getting to hear you work through that. Yeah. And getting to hear you work through that process is just going to help some other coaches work through similar instances with their players. And I just, man, it, it all comes back to me of, is the player self-aware on what they need to do to get better? And if they're not, then that's where we've got to start. And I think that a lot of the times for me as a, as a younger coach and even, you know, even a couple of years ago, it's, it, I was the more instructor role because I saw them from the outside in. But if we truly want to motivate them, inspire them and help them to continue to get better, even without us around, then it's going to have to have that self-awareness piece. And we're going to have to explain things better uh, make things clearer for them. And I just really, really like that. And I, I love getting to hear you work through that, but I, I do have a couple. Yeah. Yeah. I, go, I guess go one ahead. quick thing there. I mean, I think it's important too to like be able to sit down with a player either formally or informally and, you know, when it's appropriate in their career to really classify like what their identity is as a player, how do they have success and, and why that is. But then also like, Hey, is there a way to improve this? effectiveness of this identity but also is there a way to move from one identity to another identity as a player right where and so you know i think the data and so forth that is provided during that time is really really valuable for that player to go oh okay yeah like that's really really important right and so if you know if we feel like in our program that like body weight or strength is important you know, then being able to like take data on that for that player and say, hey, like, hey, this is where you're at. And they get to see that like that's it's really important. I think it's foundational. But then how to implement that and how to grow from that place, you know, once that data is there, I think that has to be, you know, a journey in which they really have to own the bulk of the process. Absolutely. And the more players that we have that are truly self-aware, the the, the better players that they're going to be because they're going to maximize what they have because they they have clarity and understanding of what they need to do to get better. I really like that. And that, that's the kind of stuff that gets me fired up for sure. Uh, on top of all of the game like stuff that you've mentioned today, which I think is really, really, really good. And a lot, and it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun to be able to see some of that stuff implemented uh, outside of your program too. Cause I think that there's going to be a lot of coaches that stealing your stuff, <laughs> but you know, a, a couple of things uh, before you go, uh, and this is just some quick hitters, but what's something that you will, you will have forever changed because of your experience through COVID? Well, I, I hope it's appreciation uh, and thankfulness because, you know, when something's taken away for that long, um, it's a lot of time to reflect on, you know, you know, the strengths of it, you know, and, and why you do it and do you want to continue doing it? Right. And so, I think, and I talked to my other, you know, coaching friends and so forth. And for many of us that went back to coaching after quarantine, um, we both, you know, had this same resolve of like, 
hey, this is this is really what we want to do. You know, um, I think of the movie The Natural where, you know, the, the coach is like kicking the water can and said, I should have been a farmer. I love animals, you know, and like there's points during your career or during a season where you're like, hey, are we really going to keep doing this? And uh, I think um, having that much time away really solidify like, hey, I really enjoy doing this. I, I love the relationships and the challenge of it and, and so forth. And uh, just having our guys in quarantine the last two weeks has been, it's been really, really rough. You know, I, it just feels weird to be away from them again. And also when you're away from somebody and it's abrupt, you know, it's not like there was a, a process towards, hey, we'll see you, you know, after Thanksgiving. When it's abrupt, uh, it's really confusing, you know, about how to navigate, you know, what that's supposed to look like, you know, moving forward. I love that. And I'm sure that there are a lot of coaches shaking their heads. Yes. With you right now, I can, I can feel it coming through the airwaves. A second question, what's a drill that your players love that we can steal from you? Well, I think our guys, I mean, this is going to sound really vanilla, but like they just want to compete. I, I think the more stuff you can do either, whether it's a coach throwing it or a machine or a live arm, when you play, you're working on everything all the time. And so I think what got me started on this years ago uh, was a coach, a high school coach uh, out of Florida who now lives in North Carolina and then also coached uh, at, I think, Greenville College in North Carolina. And um, he said, um, I was probably 22, 23 years old. And he said with his guys, you know, they would do like a coach pitch thing where like the coach is throwing basically BP speed uh, and and the teams are competing. And then every ball that touched the outfield grass in any capacity had to be stretched into a double. And if the runner was thrown out by half a baseline, he had to go back to first base. The next guy would hit and run. And I just thought to myself, man, like, hey, that drill right there puts a lot of pressure on people, right? Knowing that, like, you have to protect the baseball and you can't you can't hold the ball, right? Like, there's going to be pressure. And, it, it you know, as far as, like, a, a day one thing in his program – that's telling all your kids, hey, we live life two bases at a time. We try to prevent two bases and we try to move two bases. And by working on that, the kid gets to develop their awareness of what they can get away with and when, right? And so, you know, that kind of started to evolve into creating, you know, many different ways to run, you know, a hand pitch, a, a live arm or a machine scrimmage. But I mean, when the kids are moving, and you're having to make decisions on the fly and there's randomness to it. I, I think that's when I think that's when the game's fun. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.